0: You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord, your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in the land. I shall also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land, but you will chase your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I will turn toward you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. You will eat the old supply, and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you, and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Please pray with me. Lord, these are tremendous words. Tremendous words of blessing. And then, of course, you follow them up with strong words. Of warning, Lord, we need your word. For man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so I pray that you would feed us spiritually. You would give us clarity of mind, renewing our mind. You would encourage us, strengthen us, convict us where necessary. So that we might walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I pray that you would give clarity to understanding these last few chapters of Leviticus as well. So that we might serve and honor you in all that you've done for us. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Arguably the greatest general in human history was about to fight the other greatest general in human history and to begin the most decisive battle in the world. This was the Battle of Zama, where Hannibal, the Carthaginians, was going head-to-head with Scipio Africanus of the Romans. And whichever nation would be victorious would become basically rulers of the entire world. And in order to find victory, Scipio Africanus gave a speech to his troops, and he told them that they must all faithfully do their part. And these were his words to them. Bear in mind, he said, your past battles and fight like brave men worthy of yourselves and your country. Keep it before your eyes that if you overcome your enemies, not only will you be unquestioned masters of Africa, but you will gain for yourselves and your country the undisputed command and sovereignty of the rest of the world. But if the result of the battle be otherwise, those of you who have fallen bravely in the fight will lie forever shrouded in the glory of dying for your country. And while those who save themselves by flight will spend the remainder of their lives in misery and disgrace. For no place in Africa will be able to afford you safety. And if you fall into the hands of the Carthaginians, it is plain enough to anyone who gives due thought to it what fate awaits you. May none of you, I pray, live to experience that fate. Now that fortune offers us a choice of the most glorious of prizes, how utterly craven, in short, how foolish shall we be if we reject the greatest of goods, And choose the greatest of evils from mere love of life. Go, therefore, to meet the foe with two objects before you, imperial victory or death. Scipio reminds his men that really they have two choices in front of them. Unfaithful cowardice, which would result in unimaginable horrors. Or faithful valor, which would result in both victory and honor. And in the text before us, God closes his instructions to Israel with, with a similar proposition. He presents multiple blessings if they are faithful. But on the other hand, he also presents to them multiple consequences if they are unfaithful. And then he. Closes with chapter 27 presenting a final imperative to be faithful. But before we get into these chapters, let me just remind us of where we've been so far in Leviticus. Remember that the whole book is really instructions on how God's people could draw near to him and therefore then dwell in his presence. That's the aim to dwell in the presence of God. And the first 16 chapters explain that people could draw near to God through offerings. And that culminates really in the uh, main chapter of the book, chapter 16, which we've also saw was the main chapter in the whole Pentateuch, the, the, the pinnacle of the Pentateuch, so to speak, which discusses the Day of Atonement, because it's on that day that all of Israel's sins were removed. And then on from chapter 17 on, Those chapters really just explain, now that the people's sins have been atoned for, how should they then live? Now that they've been made holy, they need to live lives of holiness. And then the Lord covers many different aspects of how that will look. And this brings us to chapter 26 and 27, which explain the blessings of faithfulness, the consequences of unfaithfulness... And then a final imperative for faithfulness. Let's look at the blessings of faithfulness in chapter 26. Before presenting the blessings of faithfulness, the Lord reminds them of a a few commands in the first few verses, verses one and two. And really, these are laying again for them the foundation of what he's commanding them to do. These are the most important commands that they need to follow. Follow. Because they're fundamental to the covenant that he made with them. They're fundamental commandments. Now, just like with every relationship, there's expectations that come. Especially those bound by a covenant. There are expectations that God has with his people that they abide by. Foundational expectations. So consider that there are a few Non-negotiable expectations that couples have in their marriage. Some obvious ones. You cannot commit adultery. You need to spend regular time together. If you see each other once a year, except for you know, military service or something like that, it, it's not going to be very healthy. You cannot physically assault each other. That's, that, those are fundamental expectations when two people covenant together in marriage. And likewise, that these are the fundamental expectations God has for his people under the covenant. Now, all of his commands are important, but these are especially critical. They are not to practice any form of idolatry. So they need to be spiritually faithful. They need to keep the Sabbaths. That includes the weekly Sabbath, the seven year Sabbath and the Jubilee Sabbath, which equates they need to be have regular time with God. They need to be in regular periods of worship and they need to revere the sanctuary. That is, they need to respect the presence of God because that's where God would come to meet with them. That's why it's referred to in Leviticus as the tent of meeting multiple times. And if they keep these commands the Lord then says they are going to experience immense blessing. They keep these commands. He will bless their socks off. Now we in the church are used to hearing about the generous nature of God. And because of that, I think it's, all, it's, it's helpful just to take a step back again and, and, and recognize really what's going on here. Recall that this is infinitely better than if the most powerful man or the most beautiful woman in the world chose to marry a nobody somebody who was unheard of had nothing no really nothing to offer this person i mean what would you what would you think if the prince of wales offered to marry a young lady who was employed at the taco time in Dundee, Oregon. I mean, if you heard that, what would go through your mind? Nothing against Dundee. Just I had to pick a town. I don't even know if there's a taco time there. There might be. And what if he said to her with absolute sincerity. If you're willing to be faithful to me. Everything I have. I'm going to devote to you, to your good, to, to bless you. And, and then t- take into consideration that God governs the path of every star in every galaxy. That he governs the quivering of every molecule. And on top of that, he directs the hearts of every person on the face of this earth so that his will is always accomplished. This God is going to use all of his sovereign power to bless them. That's what's being explained here. It's infinitely greater than if the Prince of Wales proposed to some nobody. Nobody. And notice what he promises Israelites in the verses that follow. He's going to give them productive lands, verse four. The Lord would give rains, producing rich harvests of grain and fruit. Also, peace, verses six through eight. They would not fear for their lives or for their children's lives. And in fact, if even if they were attacked by enemies, they would have greater courage than the enemies, and they would chase their enemies. Their, their enemies' hearts would melt like wax, and they would turn and flee in utter terror. I mean, look at verse 8. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand. Now, we here in America, we, we live in relative peace, so it's difficult for us to truly appreciate what, what's really being promised here. I mean, so just imagine if you were living in Idlib, Syria, or Kabul, Iraq... And God gave you this promise. If you're faithful to me, I will cause your enemies to flee from you. And you will be kept in complete peace. It's an amazing promise. He also promises prosperity. Verses 9 and 10. Their population would... Increase so that they would multiply. And along with the multiplication. He would also increase their wealth. We can appreciate this promise. As a small church. I mean imagine hearing from God directly. That he would promise. If we're faithful to him. He would continue to increase our numbers. So that we could plant thousands of more churches. Throughout the world. That would all be faithful to him. And as each of those churches gets established, he would provide all of the financial means to take care of them. I mean, imagine that. I mean, that's essentially what he's promising. But best of all, notice verse 11. This is the crowning blessing. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. He says, my soul will not reject you. You'll be my people. And then in verse 13, as if to guarantee what he's saying, he reminds them of who he is. I am the Lord, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. He's saying, I did that. If I did that, I'm going to do this as well absolutely guaranteed. If you're faithful to me, this is all yours. So this is no empty boasting. This is no wishful thinking. This is not just positivity on God's part. I would like to do this. That's not what he's saying. He said, I will do this to you and for you. All you need to do is remain faithful to my commands. Well, since we've been saved and we're now Christians living under the new covenant. Does this mean that we can expect the same blessings? Yes. But not yet. I say yes, because God actually foretells a time in the future when all of these blessings will come to fruition. In Ezekiel 34, 25-31, he lays all these blessings out. He says it's going to happen, and it's telling of a future time. However, we also know that these blessings will not be experienced until the Lord returns. So what shall we expect? What should we expect now? Well, do you remember the scripture reading we received today? When the Lord went up on a mountain, similar to Moses on Mount Sinai. And he begins his sermon with these words. Blessed are those. It's what we call the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude means blessing. Because, again, God is promising blessings. 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 If you do this, blessed are you if you do this, you will receive blessing upon blessing and note the reputed, the repeated formula in Matthew five. Blessed are those. Blank dot dot dot. For they shall. Future tense. Blessed are those who right now do this for they shall receive this blessing in the future. Consider just the last few of the blessings. Verse 10, Matthew five ten. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Present for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What Jesus is saying is. If you follow me, you live the life that I live as the true Israel, you will be assured of these blessings, even if you experience nothing but distress in this life. So Jesus is saying all of those promises that God gave to Israel will be yours when I establish my kingdom upon the earth. So what this tells us is that our present suffering for the sake of Christ serves as an assurance that we will receive future blessings. Consider also the words of Matthew, the words of Jesus in Matthew nineteen, twenty-nine to thirty. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. What he's saying is faithfulness now will mean a loss of life. But as we, like Paul, die every day, we are given an assurance that there is more to come. As we die every day... We're given assurance there's more to come. There's more to come. The blessings are ahead. Faithfulness now means we die now in order to get more later. And I think we we recognize this. And I think in, in in our greatest moments of clarity, this is very obvious to us. For instance, who are the people... That you most admire. The people in, in, in history. That you most want to be like. Or who you respect the most. Or on the contrast. Who, who would you say. Whose lives are the most pitiful. When you hear their story. You're just grieved. Because you think what a waste. So much was given, and they squandered it. I mean, do you pity men like William Borden, who being heir to one of the wealthiest families in America, the the Borden Dairy System Corporation, do you pity him because he left all of that life of comfort and wealth behind? to become a missionary to Unreach People groups. And he didn't even make it to the group he was going to minister to. He died in route. Or Eric Little, the great Olympic athlete, who at the peak of his career, when he was clearly the fastest man in the world and would probably win multiple gold medals in the next Olympics, gave all of that up, To fulfill his calling to be a missionary. And he died in a Japanese concentration camp. Virtually alone. Or do you pity men like Jim Elliot. Who being a great young preacher. Was offered many large pastorates. Graduate of Wheaton College. Many offers. He He was a very gifted man. And he turned all of them down. Only to die a few years later with his four friends on a lonely beach in Ecuador. I mean, Why would a person who had so much available to them in this life, why would they give it up? Well, Elliot tells us in his own words. You've heard them before. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. To gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I mean, Elliot knew that God will bless us immensely. But he was willing to wait for that blessing. To die now so that he could and get that blessing later. And we need to anticipate these blessings. But we need to be willing to wait for them until Christ returns. And just as there are immense blessings for being faithful to God. The Lord also tells his people that there are immense consequences. If they're unfaithful. The consequences of unfaithfulness. In verses 14 through 16, God presents four terms that describe the heart of one who is unfaithful. Notice this. He says, but if you do not obey me and do not carry out these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances, so as not to carry out all my commandments, and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. If you mock me by being unfaithful, this is what's going to happen. Verses 16 and 17, he says, there's going to be debilitation and defeat. God is going to bring illness and famine and fear. And he's going to weaken them and make them so susceptible to invasion. He's going to become hostile towards them rather than beneficial. And you'll notice that these consequences are the opposite of the blessings that he lists out for them in verses six through eight. And then he says, if that's not enough to turn you. He says in verse 18 that he's going to increase that punishment seven times greater. He's going to increase it sevenfold. And he's going to bring drought, verses 18 through 20. He says he's going to make the sky like iron and the earth beneath them like bronze. All their energy would be spent uselessly and they wouldn't produce a single harvest. I mean, imagine hearing directly from God. That this would happen. I mean, if you think, if you think gardening in Oregon is difficult, and it is for me, but imagine what it would be like to have this curse. And if this is not enough to cause them to turn, he says in verse 21, he will increase their affliction seven more times by bringing devastation of wild beasts. So these beasts would kill their children, destroy their herds and flocks, and would significantly reduce their population. Now recognize this is not just the consequence of, of having a few rabid dogs run through the town and bite some people. Or even a few hungry cougars. I mean, this would be like multiple packs of big cats or packs of wolves constantly preying upon neighborhoods and dragging children back to be eaten, devastating the population. And if this is still not enough, he says, to make you turn back to the Lord, I will increase your punishments seven times worse through the deprivations of war. And verses 23 through 26 describe violence, violence, And pestilence and scenes of famine. And it eventually ends up with them being delivered to their enemies. And if this is still not enough, God says, I will increase it seven more times to the earthly maximum. Israel would be put under the siege and they would experience unimaginable horrors. They would become so deranged with hunger that some of them would actually eat their own children just to stay alive. And yet this would only result in eventual defeat. God would then destroy all of their idolatrous places. He would lay waste their cities and he would make their land desolate. And all the survivors would be taken to a foreign land. And then as promised in chapter 26, the land would finally get the rest that God had promised. Notice verse 34. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation while you're in your enemy's land. And then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. Of course, this is what happens. Israel was utterly unfaithful. And after reading verse 39, it would appear that God would utterly reject Israel. But notice that his faithful covenant love shines through. Even as he expresses these stern and terrible promises of judgment. He says he will still extend his mercy towards unfaithful people if they would just acknowledge their sin and repent. That's all they need to do. All of these devastating plagues that he will pour upon them would be immediately removed. Just as when Jesus was walking on the water and then Peter came out to him and there was these waves that were about to drown him and he panics and all Jesus needs to say is, peace be still. All that would need to happen for Israel To have those plagues removed, they just need to confess. They just need to acknowledge their unfaithfulness. That's it. He assures them in verse 41, if they confess their unfaithfulness, they confess that they're hostile in their hearts toward God. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and if they seek to make amends for what they've done, verse 41, he promises that he will remember his covenant And all of those blessings that they have yet to experience because of their unfaithfulness would then be received. You see this, the, the patient and generous and kind and merciful heart of God. And really, this gives us clear instruction on how anyone, anyone can escape the judgment of God. If you feel right now that you're under the wrath of God, and if you're an unbeliever, you are. And you would like to escape the wrath of God. You need to confess, acknowledge it. And then, of course, trust in the provision that God has given for your forgiveness in the death of Christ. But even as a believer, you might be under the discipline as God as well. And so what does a person do as a believer if they recognize they are reaping what they've sown? It's the same thing. Just confess. Acknowledge the reality of your hard heart. Acknowledge what you've done. If you sinned against another person, confess it to them. Acknowledge it to them and blessings will then be received. This is what God is seeking from us. I mean, recall the picture of the prodigal son. Who, after it just coming to his mind as he's eating amongst pigs. Living like a slave, having squandered all of his father's blessings. He remembers, even the servants of my father's house are treated better than this. And he decides to return home. And you remember what it says? His father saw him coming a long way off. And did his father then turn his back and walk away? Obviously not. His father ran to him. And it says he embraced him and he kissed him. Then he says, slaughter the fatted calf because this son that was once lost is now found. I mean, that's all the Lord wants. He just wants you to return to him. How do you do that? Confess your sin. Just acknowledge it and you will be forgiven. This was the experience of Francis Thompson. If any of you have ever heard of him, he was a famous British poet in the 19th century. G.K. Chesterton described him as having the greatest poetic energy since Robert Browning. Oscar Wilde said he was a, a superior poet even to himself. J.R.R. Tolkien said that his poem, The Hound of Heaven, was one of the most profound expressions of mature spiritual experience, and that that poem had a significant impact even on his own writing. It's helpful to know that Francis Thompson was born to wealthy parents, and he possessed a brilliant mind. However, despite his privilege, while he was studying at Oxford, he became addicted to opiates, laudanum in particular. And his life was plummeted into darkness. His addiction forced him to the streets and he was forced to sell matches for a living. He lived as a tortured soul in filth and destitution. And his most famous poem, The Hound of Heaven, is really an autobiographical depiction of his experience as he fled the grace of God, and indulge in this life of sin, he, he recounts how he could sense God like a hound of heaven pursuing him, chasing him down in love. Here's some of the, the words from that poem. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter of Vista's hopes, I sped. And it goes on for about ten minutes worth of reading. And it finally ends with the Lord cornering him. But instead of destroying him like Thompson expected, the Lord then instead explains That he was pursuing him in disciplining love. All which I took from thee, I did but take not for your harms, but just that you might seek it in my arms. All which your child's mistake fancies is lost. I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand and come. And Thompson did. He recognized that in turning, turning from God, what he was actually doing was tra- turning from the fountain of all love. And when he, fin- when he went finally at home, what he was doing, he repented and experienced the grace of God. And this is also why the author of Hebrews reminds us, "My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him." For the Lord loves those he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Well, this brings us to the imperative of faithfulness. This final chapter of Leviticus really serves as a final reminder to the Israelites of the importance of being faithful. Again, remember that the whole point of Leviticus is to provide instructions on how Israel could dwell in the presence of God. And to be able to enjoy these privileges of the covenant. Faithfulness was critical. And so this chapter presents legislation for the redemption of vows. And these are a particular kind of vow. These were vows that were made unto the Lord. And really the whole point of providing a means of redeeming your vows is that they needed to be faithful to keep their vows. So notice verse two, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man makes a difficult vow, he shall be valued according to your valuations of portions belonging to the Lord. So this phrase difficult vow refers to a vow that one would make unto God. And it would typically come alongside a request that God would bless them in some unique way. So two examples of such vows in scripture that we have are the vow of Jephthah and the vow that Hannah makes. As you know, Jephthah in Judges 11 was an Israelite judge who, during the time of the judges, vowed that if God would give him victory over the Ammonites, he vowed... To God that he would burn as a burnt offering whatever came out of his house first. And of course his daughters who comes out of his house when he returns home. And he actually offers her up as a burnt offering. Now just for clarity that was a stupid vow. It was a sinful vow and Jephthah should never have made that vow nor fulfilled the vow. Because it was sinful. But yet it serves as an example of the kind of vow one might make to the Lord. Hannah, on the other hand, in 1 Samuel one eleven, vowed that if God would just give her a child, because she was barren and she was being mocked by her husband's other wife, she said, God would just give me a child. She would vow to give him that child up to the Lord. And that's how Samuel, of course, came to live in the home of the high priest. Now, according to this chapter in Leviticus 27, people could vow unto God their children, also servants or animals. They could vow their houses or their fields. And the exceptions of what they could not vow were firstborn children, things that were under the ban, like things that were dedicated to the Lord that were described as an abomination. So think of Achan's sin in the book of Joshua. He took something that was under the ban. So those things couldn't be vowed to the Lord because they already belonged to him. And tithes couldn't be vowed to the Lord because they also belonged to him. So you could vow almost anything and say, God, I'm going to give you this if you bless me, except for these these three things because they already belong to God. Now, again, the real point of this chapter is to explain how one could redeem their vow if they end up having second thoughts. If they realize, like Jephthah shoulda, should have, that I, I vowed something pretty stupid. What do you do then? Well, God says you still need to be faithful to your vow. But, in my kindness, this is what you can do instead He demands that they remain faithful to their vows, but he would take their the value of whatever they're vowing in silver if they had second thoughts. Again, the bottom line is God's people as God's people, they needed to keep their vows just as God keeps his vows. But he reminds them in verses nine through 13. That if you vowed animals, they need to be without blemish. In verses 14 through 15, if you vowed a house, then you could redeem it with this money. If if you vowed fields, verses 16 through 25, you could redeem it based upon its value according to how close it was to the Jubilee year. And again, the last section is a reminder that firstborn animals, things under the ban, and tithes could not be redeemed. So they needed to keep their vows. But God would give them a way out if they took whatever the monetary value of it was and gave that money instead. Which of course prompts this question. How shall we apply a text like this as those who are living under the new covenant? because Christ has fulfilled the law for us. Christ is the end of the law. Romans 10:4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Right? Christ has fulfilled all the law. So do we have to keep these instructions? Well, it's true that God that Christ has fulfilled the law, but that doesn't mean that we can live however we please. Quite the contrary. In fact, what we see from the Sermon on the Mount is the standard actually gets raised. Remember what Jesus said regarding vows. Matthew 5, verse 33. Again, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. So how does Jesus apply this passage? Verse 34. I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, For it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is evil. So what's Jesus mean? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just fulfill your vows. Keep your word, keep your promises, be faithful. If you've been regenerated, if your heart has been changed, you need to live a life of faithfulness. Remember, faithfulness is one of the fruit of the spirit. So not only are we to fulfill all the vows we make to God, we need to fulfill all the promises we make to anyone. Now, this would include contracts for electronic devices Promises to play with our kids, employment contracts, marriage vows, even commitments to church membership. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Christ's fulfillment of the law does not free us to do what's right in our own eyes. Grace does not give us license to behave like Jephthah, Right? Instead, God's honor becomes our priority. God's honor decides how we live because as his children, as followers of him, we demonstrate to the rest of the world what he is like. And so when we are unfaithful, we're telling the rest of the world our God is unfaithful. So we need to recognize that there's a great cost to our unfaithfulness, namely that God's name gets blasphemed among unbelievers. This is what Paul says in Romans two twenty four for as it is written. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because of your unfaithfulness. The greatest cost of our unfaithfulness is the dishonor it brings to the one whom we serve. In fact, Peter says in his epistle describing false teachers, he says, And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So these false teachers are going to say, Oh, God is a God of grace. He's okay if you just do whatever you want. He'll forgive you. He says, That's what false teachers say. And because of those false teachers, because people actually listen to that, the name of God is blasphemed. You I can mean, imagine. Imagine being taken up to heaven and standing before the judgment throne of God. Or watching somebody else that is being judged. And the Lord says, how come you did not repent and trust in me? And they said, well, that Christian I knew that I worked with. He never kept his word. He said he was going to do this and he didn't do this. In fact, I know he was cheating on his wife. You know, we would joke in the in the conference room about different illicit websites that we would look at and we'd laugh about it. Because if that's what your followers are like, I'm gonna reject you. And then the Lord turned to you and said, His blood is on your head. Now, of course, as those forgiven in Christ, we will never experience the wrath of God for eternity. But we do bear a massive responsibility before unbelievers because their best understanding of God is what we communicate as much by our actions as by our words. So this is no light thing. We need to let our yes be yes and our no be no. And remain faithful to our commitments. Eric Little. I mentioned him before. Said we're all missionaries. Wherever we go. We either bring people near to Christ. Or we repel them from him. Sobering words. Now it might happen that you discover. That you do make a foolish commitment. You realize that. That you kind of you bit off more than you could chew. You, you agreed to do something that you actually didn't have the ability to do. You didn't have the money to fulfill this commitment or the time to fulfill this, fulfill this commitment. Or maybe it was a sinful commitment. What do you do then as a believer? Do you just go ahead and fulfill that sinful commitment? Well, I think the question we should ask is if breaking that commitment is what would most honor the Lord, then that's what we need to do. But we also need to be willing to pay whatever cost is necessary. To demonstrate that we deeply regret that commitment. And recognize what I mean. We need to pay whatever cost is necessary. Because that could mean great financial loss. That could mean dishonor, shame, maybe even prison time. But if we realize that the commitment we made was wrong and sinful, we need to be willing to pay the price for that commitment and show that our desire is to honor God at whatever cost to ourselves. because his name matters more than any of our possessions, than any of our time. His name matters more than life itself. And I think a willingness to take a significant loss will demonstrate that it's truly the Lord's honor that you're seeking. And you're not just trying to get out of a commitment that you made. And notice, notice too, that it's in order to stir us up for greater faithfulness, it's helpful to be reminded of the faithfulness of God. Right. I mean, all of these commands that God gives in Leviticus 26 and 27 are rooted in his faithfulness to the covenant. Right. He's going to guarantee all these blessings because he is always faithful. He was the one that brought them out of Egypt as if they would just remember that God will do these things because he can. He will provide for them that whole year that they're not harvesting any wheat He will will give them abundance the year before. If they just trust him, he will bless them. And so what's going to keep Israel faithful to the covenant is remembering his faithfulness. And so it's helpful for us to be reminded by the faithfulness of God as well. About a hundred years after the death of Paul, the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, was hunted down by the Roman authorities and he was commanded to deny Christ. And if he would just deny Christ, he was promised he would be released. And notice this. This is how Polycarp answered. Eighty and six years I have served him and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Do you see Polycarp's logic? The reason Polycarp could be unflinchingly faithful, even as he was about to be burnt at the stake, was because he knew of his God's unflinching faithfulness. Polycarp was about to lose everything in this life, but he was unflinchingly faithful because he was assured that God would bring about all of the promises That he had given him in Christ. The more we become aware of the sovereign goodness. And the unfailing faithfulness of God. The more that we too. Will be able to remain steadfast. And faithful to him. Let's pray. Lord that is our great desire. Because we can all give testimony. All of us who are, who, who have ever served you can give testimony that you always provide. You've always been faithful. I mean, that's why we love to sing that song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Oh, God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with you. Morning by morning, you provide for all of our needs. All that we've needed, your hand has provided us. Great is your faithfulness, God. And so I pray that you would increase our awareness of how faithful you are. You would help us to, to learn how we can meditate upon your character, your faithfulness, even as we go throughout the day that as we're struck by anxiety and fear, as we're insulted, as we're persecuted, as we're grieved by just the natural calamities of life. That our eyes would immediately then be taken back to you, back to your faithfulness. Back to the faithfulness of your son. So that we would not be shaken. Because we know you're always faithful. We ask these things in Christ's name.